Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you here this morning. And for those of you who showed up and all of a sudden we're a large portion of us are not wearing masks, and you're going, what's going on here? Everybody's wearing masks last week. Nobody's wearing masks this week. What's going on? Or, um, or so, just some people are wearing masks. Here's what's going on. That means you didn't, you're not on the church emails, because we sent one out yesterday. But the second thing it means is we were granted permission by um, this local school to set our own pro- COVID protocols going forward. And the elders didn't take this lightly, this decision lightly. We um, sought counsel. We, um, we even have a medical professional on our elder team, which is, is always handy to have. Um, but taking into account the vast or the dramatic decrease in COVID cases in our area, as, as well as the broad availability of vaccines, we chose to make this a uh, individual choice for you. And understanding that many of you will continue to wear masks and we support um, your decision to do so. So that's what's going on. But thank you for your patience with us as leaders through this very polarizing and confusing season that we've been walking through um, as we seek to strike the balance between over-caution on one hand and then just being irresponsible on the other. So um, the unity that you as a body have displayed through this whole thing has been a blessing to me as a pastor. And I just want to say thank you one more time for that. We will continue to... um, depending on what happens with the pandemic, we might have to go back towards that. But just continue to um, show love, preference for one another, and unity as as a body. Thank you. I also want to thank the local and global deacon team. Uh, If you were here last week, you saw them up here highlighting our many local and global ministry partners. We're going to be bringing them back to the forefront in, in... a few weeks as we take our yearly global and local offering. Um, but I just want to thank our deacon team. Let's, let's give them a hand um, for leading us so well last week as I was out of town. You know, it's been my pleasure as a pastor have a front row seat to see what God is doing and has done in raising up this local expression of his church that we call Fellowship Nashville. For those of you who are new and don't know the history, I'll just give you a brief look back as to where we've been, where we've come from. In early 2015, we were simply a small core group with a dream. About 30 people who were members of Fellowship Bible Church in Williamson County, but who for the most part lived up here in Davidson County. As that core group grew and gathered steam, in August of 2016, we opened public services for the first time right here at Waverly Belmont Elementary School as, as the Nashville campus. So if you hear somebody say that's been around a while, the Nashville campus, that's what they mean, but they're using old language. Um, the Nashville campus of Fellowship Bible Church. Two years later, um, we went through the difficult process Um, All the hard work of spinning off as an independent church with our own local leadership and and separate financial uh, budget, self-sustaining budget. And then in 2019, about a year later, we established our first deacon team. We rolled out our mission, vision, and values that set the DNA of our church and laid the foundation for the future. And just when we felt like all the pieces were in place, we're gaining traction, things are stable... 2020 came and hit us like the rest of the world, like a Mack truck, blindsided us. 
Since the metro schools closed their doors to outside groups renting their facilities, um, we were no longer able to gather here at Waverly Belmont Elementary because of the pandemic. So we bounced around the city for a little while um, in, before we were able to finally move back into this space last, this past summer. So here we are in the fall of 2021. We've endured three location changes, survived a very polarizing season, weathered the departure of a lead pastor, the dust is still settling, and it feels like those of us who've been around through all the ups and downs of it all are are looking at each other going, is everything okay? Are you okay? I'm okay. Are you okay? Ah, And we're just taking a deep breath. Now, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see into the future. And if I claim to, you might want to fire me as your pastor, but... I assure you of two things this morning, and one is this. God is in control. God is in control. And two, he's still writing the story of this local expression of his church. God's in control. He's still writing our story. And as an under-shepherd whom Jesus, the good shepherd, has placed here to pastor this flock... I want you to know that I'm excited about the story that God is writing in us and among us and through us. I'm excited about what he's going to do in us and through us in years to come. Here's just a few reasons why I'm excited. One, our leadership, our staff team. I I am so blessed to get to serve with the godly, mature leadership that God has brought and gifted to the local expression of his church here. So thankful for our staff team, so thankful for our deacons, so so thankful for our elders. Secondly, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for all of you. Like I said earlier, the unity that you have shown through this very polarizing season has been a huge encouragement to me as a pastor. There's many pastors out there that I rub shoulders with that are just beat up as people from different sides of the political spectrum, um, different sides of COVID protocols are just sending kind of hate mail to them. They're discouraged, they're weary. I have been blessed by the unity and love that you all have shown through this whole season. Thirdly, another reason I am personally excited is that most of you know that we were able to close this summer on a new facility that we're going to call our own, that we can call our own. Um, we're currently in the, model, in, the, in the process of getting all the permitting done so we can start remodeling, hopefully right during the new year, and God willing, we'll have that ready next summer to move into. So I'm excited about that because I, I believe it's going to open doors for us to expand and deepen our ministries, not only in our community, but also among our body. Both of those things, God is is going to give us an opportunity to move forward in, and I'm excited about that. Fourthly, every week, God seems to be bringing new faces into our midst um, here at Fellowship Nashville that are leaning into the story that God's writing here. And with this influx of new people, I, along with our staff and leadership, thought that this would be a good time for us to revisit our DNA as a church so that everyone's on the same page. We just spent the past year going through the book of John, the gospel of John, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We just tied a bow on that sermon series. And we have four weeks here in November before we start our Advent series, the first two chapters of Matthew. We have four weeks, and we're going to take those four weeks, and we're going to shine the spotlight on who we are and what we value as a church. 
we're going to unpack four aspects of our tagline in a sermon series that we're calling Identity. Identity. And our tagline states this, we're a gospel-centered church in the city for the city seeking a city above. And this four-part statement is more, more than just a tagline for us. It actually speaks to our DNA, explains who we are. It summarizes what matters to us. It forms the outline for our core values. If you're around two years ago or just poked around on our website, you know that we have 12 core values as a church. And we've sorted those 12 values into um, these four categories. One, gospel-centered. Two, in the city. Three, for the city. Four, seeking a city above. Gospel-centered points to our priority. In the city highlights our place. For the city underscores our posture. Seeking a city above emphasizes our ultimate purpose. So each week through the month of November, we'll highlight one of these four categories, these broad categories, that remind ourselves of our values, our DNA as a church. So let's first turn our attention to the three values that we sort underneath that heading gospel-centered. It's truth, grace, and transformation. Each of these three things matter deeply to us, and here's how we've defined them. Here's how we've summed them up. First of all, grace matters. Let's go ahead and read this out loud together, shall we? Grace matters. We believe that we are saved from our sin, not through our own efforts, but through the finished work of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We don't work our way towards God. No, God has come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grace matters. Secondly, truth matters. Say this out loud with me as well. We enjoy and submit to God's word even when it's hard. We don't just pick and choose what we want to cover in the Bible or what we want to believe out of the Bible. As 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture... We believe this. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. So we choose to interpret culture in light of the Bible rather than the other way around is basically what that means. Thirdly, also under the heading of gospel-centered, we believe that transformation matters. Read this third value out loud with me. We understand that the gospel is what continues to change us from the inside out. You see, the gospel isn't just how we come to faith in Jesus. It's also how we grow in faith in Jesus. And I'll unpack that a little bit as we go along this morning. Now, we don't have time to take a deep dive into each of these values as we've stated them here. But what I do want to do this morning is take a 10,000-foot overview and explain what we mean when we say we're gospel-centered. I know that's a, a buzzword among Christian, in Christian culture, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page by what we mean when we say we're a gospel-centered church. But before we open our Bibles and look at two main passages that, that focus in on the gospel, would you join me in prayer asking that God would give us understanding into his word this morning? Father, thank you. For your word. Thank you that we can interpret culture through it. Thank you that we, we have a guide in this world 
Thank you for your spirit and connection with your word. Father, as we open it this morning, may our hearts be open to what you want to teach us. May our hearts be open to the reminder of your love for us. In Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So when you hear us talk about being gospel-centered here at Fellowship Nashville, we're basically meaning two things. It means we rely on, first of all, the gospel to bring people to Jesus, to save them. And secondly, we rely on the gospel also to grow people in Jesus, to sanctify them. So if you're taking notes, my message this morning is going to have two parts. Part one, relying on the gospel to bring people to Jesus. And part two, relying on the gospel to grow people in Jesus. Let's talk about part one first. You know, in our culture, there are a lot of things, a long list of things that churches rely on to, to, to bring people, in attempt to bring people to Jesus. I'd like to read you a, a list from a recent book by a popular church consultant. See if any of these things sound familiar to you, okay? Number one, an amazing visual brand and savvy social media. Number two, stellar, stellar communicator, preacher, teacher, whichever term you prefer. Number three, the perfect mix of demographic or ethnic diversity on stage. Number four, baristas serving sustainable coffee. Number five, intellectual thought-provoking services. Number six, uber cool kids ministry that your children can't wait to attend. Number seven, VIP parking for visitors with gifts. Number eight, heart-pumping opening worship with a face-melting band. And a good-looking Worship leader named Brett. Number nine, magnificent choir backed by an orchestra of virtuosos. Number 10, prime piece of real estate in the community. Number 11, topical preaching. 12, expository preaching. 13, suit and tie preacher. 14, skinny jeans preacher. 15, just enough pop culture references and sermons. Number 16, advanced stage lighting with lasers and fog machine. Number 17, visible tattoos. 18, vintage liturgy. 19, staffed with advanced degrees. 20, staffed with no degrees. 21, staffed with a past. 22, youth sports leagues. 23, art displayed on every wall. And I could keep going, but I won't. You get the idea. Now, don't hear me wrong. None of these things are bad in and of themselves, except for perhaps skinny jeans. And most, of the, and most of the churches that employ these methods believe the gospel and share the gospel. So don't hear me knocking them, okay? In fact, there's a couple items on this list that would characterize us, such as expository teaching. The problem comes when we functionally rely on any number of those things to bring people into the kingdom. If a church's functional reliance is on the trendy methods of culture rather than the timely, timeless message of the gospel, then that church cannot be characterized as being gospel-centered. Does that make sense? It's a matter of what we're relying on. Now, why is this important? Well, if you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, open it up uh, to Romans chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible... That's okay, but we want to change that. And at our connect point, there's a stack of Bibles there that is our gift to you. As you're on your way out, or if you want to just get up and go get one now, feel free. Um, That is our gift to you if you don't have your own copy of God's Word. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is Apostle Paul writing to first century um, Christians in Rome. And he says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The first thing that I'd like for us to notice here and take notice of in this verse is what Paul calls the gospel. What does he say it is? Yeah, say it louder, Lee. Yeah, it's the power of God for what? For salvation. This means that the gospel message has divine energy behind it and in it. We don't need to add power to it. No, it's already power in and of itself. God's power. And if it is God's power for salvation, then it's infinitely um, more powerful than any of our culturally relevant methods for attempting to coax people into the kingdom of God. Paul is saying here that the simple good news message that Jesus lived the perfect life, died for our sins in our place on our behalf instead of us, was buried and then rose again to conquer death and will one day return to make all things new, that message is powerful. That message is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes that they're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Savior's name is Jesus Christ. The gospel is plenty powerful enough without our help, without our culturally relevant methods. God doesn't need our laser shows and fog machines. Throughout his New Testament writings, the Apostle Paul often described himself as merely a servant of the gospel. What does this mean? Well, it means like he says here in Romans 1.16, that he recognized that the gospel message in itself, contained the power of God for salvation. It's sufficient in and of itself for salvation. And his role as a servant of the gospel is is simply to serve that message to people in the same way that a waiter serves a good meal. And like Paul, our job as Jesus followers is simply to bring the gospel to the table every day where we live, work, learn, and play. And let it do the work that only it can do. And my job as a pastor is to simply bring the gospel each and every Sunday morning and let it do the work that only it can do as I serve it up. My friends, it's not our well-crafted intellectual arguments that bring people into the kingdom and establish faith in their hearts. It's not the advanced level of our theological training. It's not the slickness of our worship team. It's not the size of our church. It's not our ministry methods. It's the simple gospel message that has been entrusted to each and every one of us. And the gospel that comes to us is meant to flow through us in our unique spheres of influence. We're going to talk more about that next week when we talk about being in the city and what we mean by that. And I don't know about you, but that is incredibly freeing to me. Because sometimes I get a little uptight when I start thinking, okay, this is dependent. God's message is, is dependent on how I explain it or how I bring it. And, and it all is resting on my shoulders. And I begin to feel the weight of that because <laughs> I know I'm inadequate. <laughs> this is incredibly freeing to me. I hope it is to you. I hope it's a comforting truth to you. In our desire and vision to see our neighbors, coworkers, friends, and family come to know and love Jesus like we do, it does not ultimately depend on our talent. It does not ultimately depend 
on how much we know. The message that we have is powerful in and of itself. And God is already at work drawing men, women, boys, and girls to himself each and every day, each and every week. And we simply get to be the waiters at the table that serve them the wonderful meal of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. You know, in speaking of the gospel in the book of um, 2 Corinthians, another epistle of Paul to the early church, Paul says this, but we have this treasure, speaking of the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul is basically saying here that we as Jesus followers are not all that special. We're just clay pots. But we are clay pots that contain a priceless treasure, the gospel. A treasure that has surpassing power that belongs to God, not to us. So when you hear us say that we at Fellowship Nashville are striving to be a gospel-centered church, it means that we're going to rely on our message more than our methods. We're going to rely on the gospel message more than our culturally relevant ministry methods. So it doesn't mean we don't have culturally relevant ministry methods, but we're not going to first and foremost rely on those. We're going to rely on the timeless message of the gospel. This does not mean we won't make every effort to do things with excellence here. It does not mean that we won't individually attempt to adorn the gospel with love everywhere we go, where we live, work, learn, and play. No, that's important. But what it does mean is that our priority is going to be on the message of the gospel. This simple and timeless message that although we are more messed up by sin than we ever thought possible, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. And it's the gospel message that saves people. Which is why the Apostle Paul is so bold with it and, and, and why he said here in, in Romans 1.16, the verse that we just looked at, that he's not ashamed of it. That's how he starts the verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. Why would he say he's not ashamed of it? Why? Because it works. It has sufficient for the salvation of all who believe. It's all powerful to bring people to Jesus. Author Will Mancini speaks to this in a book that the elders, staff, and deacons are currently reading, and I want to just read an excerpt from that. That is why Paul fought so fiercely against requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. That requirement implied that the gospel did not work. That is why he did not come to the Corinthians with eloquence or human wisdom. It would have implied that the gospel did not work. That is why he considered his birth status and Torah piety as garbage. Philippians 3.8. Relying on them would imply that the gospel did not work. Paul went out of his way to reject anything that might give a person a reason to think that the gospel was not all-powerful to save. To do otherwise would betray a lack of faith in the gospel's power. It would show that he was ashamed of the gospel, embarrassed by its insufficiency. My friends, the gospel in and of itself is sufficient to save people. I was away last weekend with um, a group of, of five young couples. Meredith and I were the old couple. Um, five young couples in their 20s. And w- what we did all weekend long, was we shared our gospel stories. I asked them to come prepared to share their gospel story in a format that I had given them to, to work on ahead of time. And as we sat around um, with a view of a lake in a, in a house, um, as we sat around the living room there by a, a, 
a fireplace, we, we shared those stories of God's grace. Shared the stories of where the gospel intersected each of our stories. I was once again reminded of how powerful that message is. How powerful God is to reach down and rescue people. It's his power, not ours. I was struck once again through the variety of stories that were shared. People coming from very religious backgrounds. People coming from no religious background at all. But all being rescued by the simple message that though we are more messed up by sin than we thought possible, we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. I came away from that weekend so encouraged. So encouraged. The gospel is beautiful. It's beautiful. So to sum up, first half of my message is this. To be gospel-centered means that we rely on the gospel to bring people to Jesus, to save them. And now for the second half, and I'm going to sum it up before I give it to you, okay? Here it is. To be gospel-centered also means that we rely on the gospel to grow people in Jesus, to sanctify them. So we not only rely on the gospel to save people, we also rely on the gospel to sanctify people, to grow them in Jesus. And I could preach for another hour on just this second point, but to waylay your fears, okay? Uh, Since our time is short, I'll only give you a quick overview of what we mean by this. How does the gospel grow people in Jesus? You know, just like there are many things that churches often rely on to bring people to Jesus, There are also many things besides the gospel that churches rely on to grow people in Jesus or in an attempt to to sanctify people. I'd like to quickly point out two common but insufficient strategies for growing people in their faith. Insufficient strategy number one is this. Simply give people more biblical information. It's often thought if we just give people and teach people biblical information, correct doctrine... The knowledge that they acquire will automatically translate into spiritual maturity. But while biblical knowledge is important, it's it's an essential piece of the puzzle in growing in Christ. Don't hear me wrong on that. It's insufficient on its own to change people from the inside out. It's insufficient on its own to change the heart and to grow people into Christ-likeness. In other words... And hear this, a person can be theologically astute and profoundly spiritually immature. I'll say that again. Somebody can be theologically astute and profoundly spiritually immature. Consider the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus encountered in the Gospels. Okay, these guys had probably had their whole Old Testament memorized word for word. They knew more about God than anyone else in their society, and yet Jesus' harshest words were reserved for them, calling them blind guides and hypocrites. Their orthodoxy, their right doctrine, had not translated into orthopraxy, right practice. It's evident that these people who knew the most about God were still far from God's heart. You know, today... That was back then, but today we only need to look as far as the very public and tragic moral failures of high-profile Christian leaders, pastors, and teachers to see proof of this same unfortunate reality. There are many profoundly, spiritually immature people with seminary degrees 
standing in pulpits. Biblical knowledge does not automatically equate to spiritual maturity. So we can't rely on simply telling people to listen to more sermons or or memorize more Bible verses. Don't hear me wrong again. Acquiring more biblical knowledge is not bad. It's an essential piece of the puzzle, but it cannot be relied on for spiritual growth alone. Here's another mistaken strategy that many churches employ, and that's this. Simply encourage people to modify their behavior. Now, just like gaining biblical knowledge is important to spiritual growth, um, behavioral change is important as well. But we, it cannot be what we primarily rely on to grow in our faith. It's sort of like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Or if you think of a, a lemon tree that looks rather anemic, and the, the, it, it's like taking yellow spray paint and spraying the, the, the lemons yellow. No, that's, that's not... <laughs> what brings about spiritual growth. We can't simply tell people to do more and try harder to become a good Christian. If we do that, we'll actually put people on a a very dangerous and self-focused cycle that I like to call the behavior modification cycle. Some of you, I put this up on the screen before in our John series a, a few months back, so it may look familiar to you. And, and this cycle looks like, or works like this. If, if I, as your pastor, were to say, you know, you just need to do more and try harder to be a good Christian. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Will yourself to obedience. You know what's going to happen? Some of you are going to do it. Some of you are very self-disciplined, have a lot of, of willpower, and you will do it. And then you know how you feel about yourself when you succeed? You'll be patting yourself on the back, comparing yourself to everybody else who doesn't have as much willpower as you, and you'll turn into a very judgmental person that nobody really wants to be around. But inevitably, because you are human, you know what's going to happen? You're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to fail. You're going to slip up. And then that will lead to another self-focused reality. Instead of self-righteous pride, you'll swing to what? self-loathing shame. Oh, I can't believe I did it again. Which, in a culture like this, a behavior modification culture will often lead you to just put on a mask and hide. Not wanting anybody else to know that, hey, there's something not quite right with me. Or, if you continue to try and fail, you might just want to give up on the Christian life altogether. But then you're like, oh, I just need to do more and try harder, like the pastor said. And so you do more and try harder, and boom, there's success. And then you go from self-loathing shame right back up to what? Self-righteous pride. And then you fail and go down to what? And then you go up and down and up. It's a horrible way to live. It's a self-destructive, self-focused cycle. And so if I, as your pastor, just simply tell you to modify your behavior, it's not doing you actually any good in and of itself. It's just having you bounce between self-righteous pride and self-loathing shame. How many of you can relate to this, this, this cycle? Okay, quite a few. It's kind of what I, the church culture I grew up in, okay, that emphasized um, right behavior and obedience more than, more than the gospel itself. And your acceptance is determined on how well you obey. And I would bounce back and forth between self-righteous pride and self-loathing shame. Both information acquisition and behavior modification are outside-in approaches and attempts 
towards spiritual growth, but they're both insufficient for changing people from the inside out. Why? Because they aren't focused on the heart. And that's why I want us to look together at another important Bible passage about the gospel from Titus chapter 2 this morning. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Would you read this out loud with me? Some of you are falling asleep and you need to wake up. Here it goes. Verse 11. We'll say it out loud. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? What is it that teaches us to say no to ungodliness? What is it? Yeah, The grace of God, the gospel of grace. The grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The gospel, listen to this. The gospel is not good advice on how to change your behavior. The gospel is good news that God loves you in spite of your behavior. The good news that God loves you in the midst of your sin. It speaks to your heart. It aims at changing you from the inside out. It tells you that there's no future version of yourself that God delights in more than who you are right now in Christ. And that in Christ means you're covered by Christ's righteousness. And that's what he sees when he looks at you. And you are fully accepted just as you are. You're fully loved just as you are. But hear this as well. God loves you too much to leave you as you are. He will change you. In fact, he will insist on your change, but he won't do it through behavior modification or information acquisition. He will do it by speaking the truth of the gospel to your heart that you are loved and accepted in Jesus Christ. And I lost my place in my notes. Thanks for the grace. Thanks for the grace. I love how... um, Pastor and author Tim Keller puts it, he, he says this, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's not just how you come to faith, in other words. It's the A through Z of the Christian life. It's how you grow in faith as well. My friends, this is why over and over and over again, in every sermon that I give you, my goal is to remind you of one thing. I actually plan this every Sunday. Part of my sermon prep is, I go through a four-part process. Text, need, gospel, change. What does the text say? Why did Jesus have to die for this message? (laughs) How do I fit in the gospel? Um, Need, why do you need to hear it? And change, what change am am I trying to affect in myself and in us as a congregation? Based on what we've learned from this passage. But, but the gospel is an important part of my sermon prep. Each and every message I give, I'm thinking, how can I serve the gospel? How can I mind you that you are loved in Christ? I, as your pastor, by God's grace, will never point you to behavior modification, to your own willpower as a Christian. But it's my intention to consistently point you, my friends, to the gospel. The gospel of grace found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because when the immensity of God's love for you begins to permeate every dark corner of your heart, that's when lasting spiritual growth 
occurs or begins to occur from the inside out rather than the outside in. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's the gospel of grace that changes us from the inside out. It's the gospel of grace that grows us in Jesus. And we learn that we don't obey in order to be accepted, but we're already accepted. And that's what motivates our obedience. It's a much different motivational engine. I wish I could spend more time on this, but we need to tie, our time is up. I need to tie a bow on this. We'll revisit it. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to come back to the gospel again and again and again and again in every message I preach. So, um, but we do need to tie a bow on this message. So as the band comes back up, let's quickly review what we mean when we say we're gospel center. Please, please re- repeat, or not repeat, but say these with me as I read them. Here we go. To be gospel-centered means that we rely on the gospel to bring people to Jesus, to save them. Secondly, to be gospel-centered means that we rely on the gospel to grow people in Jesus, to sanctify them. This is an essential part of our DNA here at Fellowship Nashville. Next week, we'll look at part two of our tagline, which sums up three more values for us under the heading in the city. And we'll talk about what we mean by that next week. So stay tuned um, to our, when we post it online or come in person for part two of our four-part series called Identity. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it reveals to us of your love for us. Thank you that you so love the world that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we don't work our way to you but you worked your way to us in the person and work of Jesus who lived the perfect life, died the death we deserved in our place on our behalf instead of us, was buried, rose again to conquer death. And is one day going to return to make all things new. Thank you for that message. We put our faith and our trust in you. Knowing that salvation does not come from us, but comes from you in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace. It truly is amazing. Amen. All of you will find one of these uh, by your seat. Somebody stepped on one up front. Um, <laughs> but there's a replacement right next to you. Um, but in this, we, we have a, a reminder of the broken body of Jesus on our behalf. His shed blood on our behalf. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he, he was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples and he took the unleavened bread and he broke it and reinterpreted it, and reinterpreted it in that moment and said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, remember the sacrifice that I made. Then he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Now, they probably really didn't know what was going on at that point, but it would soon come clear as history would unfold in front of them, and they would see him go to the cross and see his body break and his blood shed. 
And that's when they begin to realize the significance of it. And so for some 2,000 years now, people like us, believers in Jesus, have gathered. And we've taken a cup and we've taken bread. And, and, and we've partaken, those, partaken in those together to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. But also to remind ourselves of what's coming. When we will share in a feast someday with the king. When he makes all things new. And we'll drink the cup again in the kingdom with King Jesus. I'm not going to prompt you on when to eat the bread and drink the cup. But if you're a believer in Jesus, if that's where your faith is, I want to invite you as the band leads us in this closing song, maybe in between a verse or during a verse or after it's done, to simply take that and remember and celebrate what Jesus has done for you. Remember the message of the gospel which is the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes.